Yeah, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> and uh, delight to see you all. And um, welcome all the visitors. And um, Emily's birthday today, we mentioned that, did we? No, it was Friday, sorry. But I was thinking, you know, Jacob Brothers here. And, uh, you know, when they used to go to high school, they rode bikes. Well, actually, they rode a bike. It's the first I've ever heard of a tandem. I'm not sure who was in the front, but, you know, one steered the other pedal. Is that right? <laughs> but what happened when the, your older sister left school and you're on your own? You still ride that tandem? <laughs> anyway, Jake uh, and Crystal, they're from Adelaide, where Alex is, and uh, they serve alongside Alex, and praise God for them and all the other young people that are there. Uh, look, my personal congratulations to Sarah and Ryan. My first chance to say it, but I'm so pleased. They found each other and uh, match made in heaven and all of that. And then I am so pleased to hear the engagement of Lewis and Janae. It praised God. And these are just some of the people I have along the way prayed for and prayed for that these matters would be, you know, find good answers in their life. The right fellas would come along, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't only pray as I often have for young ladies who are um, married and need babies and We've, there's so many. Do you know there are babies here in this church and in some other churches in the area that are, um, haven't gone to school yet, primary school kids, high school kids, young adults into their 30s now? There's a whole host of kids that were never born until their mother came here and got a prayer. And there's a, there's a bunch in this church, a bunch of others. But that's, that's only the, one of the things that came out of the obedience I gave the Lord in a matter years ago and, and, and this, this business of getting victories through an initial obedience, it's one of the subjects that will come up next weekend in our spiritual warfare conference, so be, be sure to tune in to that. Uh, but this, this other area of just, you, you know, praying until you see good things happen where good things are needed, it's, it's work we, we all do. But anyway, congratulations to these young couples who... Um, you know, stepping out and holding your journey of life is a wonderful journey. We thank God for you. Let's just share prayer together. Father, we thank you for government, which your word says is the minister of Christ. And our prayer today is that the word of Christ and the leading of the Spirit would be, in fact, all the more at work in government in Australia, in federal government, state governments, local governments. We, you said pray for kings and all who are in authority. We pray today and ask, Lord, that you would all the more guide the affairs of this nation. And not only government, but education and the courts and police and business and family life, schools, universities, until all of these things come into submission to Christ, as we believe will be the course of history. I thank you, Lord, despite ups and downs of Western civilization, we believe... All things will serve Christ in the end. This will turn. I thank you. Australia will serve Jesus. And we pray for that. We seek your face and believe. I thank you, Lord, we have wonderful basis for belief because you've told us to pray this way and you have answered so many other prayers. You said have faith in God. And we put our faith for this in you today. And Lord, I pray for these two young couples preparing for marriage and I ask, that you'd protect them. That every day from now until that wedding, no harm befall them, no scheme of the devil 
No evil word come against them. We cut it all off. I ask, Lord, protect their health and watch over their hearts and bless them and grant, Lord, a great outcome to their lives together. And now, Lord, open your word to us today. It is the word of Christ. And grant that the word of God would go deep to every heart today for our cleansing and for our maturing, for our understanding. Holy Spirit, come and grant to us the spirit of understanding. Reveal Christ to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, David spoke about adoption, and he used a wonderful illustration that really helped people get a grip on what it was all about. That is the biblical understanding of adoption as applying to us, rather than you know, simply any casual view of, under, uh, of adoption. And of course, he told the story of Julius Caesar and um, his posthumous adoption, and so on and so forth. And um, anyway, I made that whole subject live, but both the illustration and the application, I thought it, that was a message so helpful that really every congregation in the world would be helped. Of course, Christians everywhere would be helped to get a, get a hold of that. In fact, it's, it's, that's worthy of development. And I, anyway, I thank David for that message. And, um, but even before he preached the message last Sunday during the second song, suddenly I got this, uh, this idea from the Lord of what I should bring to you this week, and it turned out it follows on from that. And, and the big question is this, this, this amazing adoption that takes place where you, who were lost in trespasses and sin and total darkness in you, not even a desire to seek God or know God, and yet somehow he put within you that desire. I mean, everything you have, he cultivated and brought you to himself. But then how does he free you from the curse of death and sin which is called the curse of the law, the soul that sins, it will die. How does he free you? Because everything God does, yes, yes, he's all powerful and can do as he wishes, but he cannot contravene his own nature and his own nature never breaks a law. That is, there is no, there's no infidelity, there's no unfaithfulness with him. There's always complete justice with him, which means everything God does, this this huge love he has that takes a hold of everything is always on the basis of justice as well. There, there must be supporting everything that is done and said, a law that provides for it, allows for it. In other words, it's legal. God's acts are actually legal. And therefore, he can't just save man unless there is a legal basis for saving him in a world where man was totally lost and the law was against man. How did he do it? That's the big question for today. How did he pull it off? How did he get a hold of you and the law was totally against you, condemned under sin, no light in you at all? How did he then be able, the moment you heard his voice and believed, to save you from your sins, deliver you from the curse of sin and death, adopt you into his family, write your name in heaven, and then watch over you all the way to get you there. How did he do it? Especially seeing this world was sold under darkness and under the control of someone who is called, with a little g, the God of this world. How did he get you out from under the law that said you belong to that God so that you could belong to another the God with the big G. 
Yes, he, he had the power to judge the world, but he didn't have, to have the power to save a single man or woman without there being a legal basis for it. And that is the wonderful mystery of Christ. And that is what leads us to this, um, to a most interesting scripture at a moment. He, the plan, the plan would so result in the transference of power in this world from Satan to Christ, Christ could ultimately take the keys to death and Hades totally on his authority. Christ could come and say, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. How did he do it? And how did he succeed in doing it? Part of the story is he succeeded in doing it by keeping the plan veiled, hidden, and secret. Which brings us to this interesting scripture 1 Corinthians 2, 7-8. It's the third one on the list back there. Uh, Ethan, whoever's putting these up. First, the third one on the list. 1 Corinthians no, uh, chapter 2, 7-8. Take a look at this, which is up there in a different version. But it says, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who are these rulers of the age referred to there? The Bible tells you who the ruler of this age was. It was Satan. Along with principalities and powers, other demonic fallen princes, they're the rulers of this age, according to the Bible. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. How, how could it be that all that preaching was done through all the Old Testament, all the patriarchs, all the prophets, scriptures written, copied and copied, and full of promises about what God was going to do, and Satan didn't get it. Well, that's what I'm going to try and show you. And Jesus said, the next one along, Ethan, Luke 12, 39, but understand this. Now, this is one of the things Jesus said. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, now in this case, the owner of the house was Satan. And the thief, remember this is just analogy. Christ is not actually a thief. He would not have let his house be broken into. Christ broke into the house and stole the goods. You also must be ready. He's now referring to another day. When Christ appears again, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour. You do not expect him. Well, that won't be you, will it? You'll be, a, you'll be living in the faith. He can come at any moment for you. Because, you know, that's the point, isn't it? None, life's uncertain. None of you know when your day comes. Life is uncertain. So walk with Christ. Live with him. And, and learn to appreciate what I'm about to tell you. So here we go. Let's go back to the kind of thing that's in the Old Testament because again and again and again, God kept saying, I've got a purpose. Actually, this was Jesus all through the Old Testament. By the way, we sang a song earlier. And in the line, there was a, a slight inaccuracy that, that for practical purposes doesn't matter. But we sang about 
yeah, we were singing about the, the titles and the names of Jesus, and a whole bunch of them went up, and it was good. But one of them was calling him the second Adam. Do you know that nowhere does the Bible call Jesus the second Adam? Do you know why? We're not counting. Do you know why? Because if you just call him the second, that hasn't ruled out a third. But the Bible's very clear. It doesn't call him the second Adam. It calls him the last Adam. There's a first Adam and a last Adam, and there's none in between, and there's no more to come. Which is why the Bible says Peter. Peter preached it, Acts chapter 4, before the rulers of Israel, the, the high priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees, effectively the Sanhedrin, he said there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He alone, only one. He pulled it off, he did it. How did he do it? Well, the first thing was you had to keep it shrouded in mystery so that nobody really understood what it was about except there were these huge promises. What did it really mean? Well, here, for example, uh, go back to the first scripture on the sheet there, Ethan. Isaiah 46, God speaks through the prophet. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. See, he was already declaring it, but nobody got it. But see, unless it was written, it couldn't be done. And from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. And we often read that and think that he's talking about, you know, every kind of little purpose, and that's true too. He will accomplish his purpose, but really he's talking about his big purpose. Here's another one. Isaiah 55 verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For, we get to it, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So, now here it is, so shall my word be. Who's the word of God? Jesus was going to come down to earth. So it's all hidden, all this veiled language. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose. I, uh, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, the principle applies to every word he speaks, but hidden in all of this is the mystery of Christ. So, wonderful. <clears throat> so, here's, here's the law that was locked in place that, that meant to all intents and purposes and as far as Satan was concerned, the problem couldn't be solved. He had man in his clutches and man couldn't get out of sin and death. Take a look at the scripture. Psalm 115. May the Lord cause you to flourish. Oh, this is a good promise for you all. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. You, you can take that to heart as the Lord's heart for you. But there's more. May you be blessed by the Lord. Now look at this line. The maker of heaven and earth. He made it. He made the heavens. And he made the earth, but he had a purpose. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to man. What you should call to mind at this point is when God made Adam, the first Adam, he says to him, have dominion. 
Now, it's, it's, no, it's known as the dominion mandate, and it applies to us all, as, in principle, have dominion over. And that was all the earth, all creation, the birds, the fish of the sea, animals. So it was given to man to govern. Mankind was given authority, govern, care for, cherish, and, and rule over. This, this rule wasn't dominate in the sense of destroying and exploiting. It was in the sense of managing and caring for it and improving it. Yes, God had planted a garden in Eden, but the rest of the world was out there wild for ultimately man to manage and govern as time went by. This dominion mandate, you know, have the management of, it, it's power of attorney. See, everything has a legal basis. So God who made it and who owned it gave a commission. He handed over the authority concerning the planet. And see, this is not just physical. It's not just material. This is spiritual authority. Man can speak and it's done. This is why God had Adam name the animals. Adam's word, so important. But you cannot, look, look, look. Man is made in God's image because God's plan was this. He had all along had angels, spirits of all kinds that he had made, made holy, made highly intelligent, made powerful. They all had purposes. Everyone individually made. This was not a race. They all had opportunity to choose right, but there's still moral choice. There was moral choice in that world, we know, because some of them fell through pride, through jealousy, through rebellion, a host of them fell, there was moral choice. And there has to always be moral choice, and you can't be made in the image of God as you are without moral choice. Consequently, to the first man is given a moral choice. But, it, but it's made so simple, so easy, that it would be easy never to mess it up. To start with, he's given a clean nature. He doesn't have within him... He wasn't born with anyone's sin in him. He's, so he's got a pure heart. He knows the Lord, walks with God, and there must be a thousand trees, all kinds of good food laid on to eat, and the simple command is, but of just one tree, don't eat. There was another tree in the midst of the garden called the tree of life. He could freely eat of the tree of life, which actually is Christ. That tree of life, all through scripture is Christ. The cross for us is the tree of life. That's Christ. But there was another tree of which he was told, it's the knowledge of good and evil, of this one tree don't eat, and if you do, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Moral choice in the simplest thing. But man felt, the race felt, we all are infected. You are born with Adam's sin in you. Adam's a real person. The sin was real. And if you don't think that, forget Christ. That's the whole doctrine of Christ, the whole of the New Testament is false and totally irrelevant if you can't believe there was an original sin that put the whole race under the power of sin. Man did fall. And it became very apparent that this death was not 
immediately physical death had came in time but something died and every one of us has been born in this bondage New Testament really clear the sin of Adam is in us all now dear friends it was this problem the whole race sold under sin the whole race subject to the law of sin and death is the soul that sins it shall die and no way out except this that insofar as a sinless man had failed a moral test and plunged the whole race into darkness it would require a sinless man of the same race to die a propitiatory death for the whole race this is where Christ comes in but it requires a sinless man how do you get a sinless man from a race that is sold under sin and every child born has Adam's sin but God knew something Satan didn't there was a way to do it and the Lord knew this from eternity past from the foundation of the world we're told it was already a legal provision in the case of the fall of man there's no legal provision for the fall of angels but it's one thing to provide the right man it's another thing to get the rules of this world to crucify it under certain conditions and yet and yet it's all prophesied but in veiled language now God could act in this world we're not saying he couldn't act for example Cain and Abel both worship him but Abel is righteous Cain is not Abel can be declared righteous Cain can come under judgment and then a judgment can come on the whole race there's, there's a flood that judges the race but God can speak to Noah Noah can build up the interesting thing is everything everything God does in this world he does through a, a human channel that is when you cooperate with God when you listen to him when you'll obey him you open the way for God's power to flow and act because he placed the world under the dominion of man remember we read the scripture the highest heavens belong to the Lord but the earth is given to man he set up an authority structure that is a legal structure whereby it is your word or my word that opens the way or closes the way for things to happen in this world still to this day this is why we pray it's why we listen to the voice of the Spirit It's why we choose to walk with God It's why we search the scriptures because then our lives become more powerful in a way that serves Christ rather than the flesh of the world and the devil so everywhere you go in this world and there's a curse at work there's abject poverty there's warfare raging things like this occultic darkness it will always have been historically the will of man that is man's mankind's choices words that put that thing in place gave it authority to happen and and have locked it in and guess what we come with the gospel we bring a different word people believe they respond they start to walk with God lights begin to light begins to flood into these dark places and with the process of 
more prayer and more saved and more generations, change takes place. And this is why the world as a whole moved from such darkness thousands of years ago, such anarchy, to having better forms of government, better water, better health care, a whole lot less poverty, a whole lot less uh, child mortality, on and on and on. It's because the gospel has so changed the world. It's, it's the word that needs to go out. Scripture says he extends his, his, his rule through Zion. It is the kingdom of God. But Zion is the other people of God. So as we, as we extend his word, as we give authority to better things, as people give up giving authority to darker things, this world changes. It's a process. You're part of the process. Your life is really important. And if one generation messes up and we don't walk with the Lord, the next one surely will. But blessed are you if you walk with the Lord and play your part in your small way, help change this whole world. So here we had a, a, a race sold under sin, under the God of this world. And, and into this world, the Lord had to establish a beachhead. And he does establish that beachhead. It had to be a beachhead of faith, by the way, because through faith you can get man thinking obediently, worshipping obediently, living righteously, and it opens the way for God to do more things. And so the, the beachhead is with Abraham, father of faith. He's hugely important in the history of things, history of salvation. But Abraham is still under sin. Abraham can't save the race. And because Abraham gets established, God can't save the race. No, but it's a beachhead. But you notice that this one man is so sorely tested. And the thing he's sorely tested in, even though he's the friend of God, has to do with faith. Long years of believing a promise that never seems to get fulfilled, but he doesn't waver in believing. Eventually there's a son. A son is given. He's old age. Seemingly. Then he's tested some more. Is he willing to sacrifice the son? The sacrifice in the end is not required, but is he willing? So you, you talk about sorely tested. And Abraham passes this faith obedience test and comes through by the grace of God and a beachhead is established through the obedience of someone that what does this mean now? It means now God can raise a generation of people, to begin with, descended from Abraham, but ultimately Israel had, when they came out of Egypt, many, it was a mixed multitude, many slaves left with them, formed a nation, could make a covenant, but the purpose of this, think of these things. The purpose of this nation formed at, at, at Sinai and given a covenant is before the mystery of Christ can be revealed, and it won't be revealed until after the cross takes place, a whole lot of things are going to be put in place. To start with, the meaning of what Jesus will do must be made really, really clear so that the moment he does it, oh, we get it, and we've got all this paperwork that explains it. But it was never understood before. So, we, so the Lord introduces if you like, all the paperwork to do the job in the form of symbols and hidden things. And so he establishes a temple, but it's a physical one, an altar and sacrifices 
and blood being shed and a priesthood and laws and rituals and ceremonies and a, and a national life. And do you know, every single one of these was not yet the real thing. Every single one of these was a symbol loaded with meaning that were only shadows of what was to come. It, it gave a picture that was teaching the human race to think a certain way about to know God and to think about God and to understand law and to understand sacrifice and understand worship and understand the nature of God, his, his mercy, his love, his justness, his, his everlasting faithfulness, all of these things are taught and sung about, but in the minor key, because when Christ would come, we would all sing mainly in the major key. You take a, take a listen to traditional Israeli music, it's all in the minor key. The reason for it all, every one of these things was a symbol. The, these feasts of Israel that they were meant to get, keep holy were symbols of Jesus. The Sabbath day, a symbol of Jesus. The altar, a symbol of Jesus. The tabernacle was, the high priest himself was, the sacrifices were, the offerings were the holy days, the, all of these things, one after another, symbol, 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 symbol. And when we get the real, ah, it all makes sense. And we no longer worship God by legalistic adherence to the symbols. Now, your entire worship is Jesus. You walk with Jesus. Jesus is your Sabbath. By the way, even the manna from heaven, symbol of Jesus. Jesus later on said, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Eat me and you'll live. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is like that. All this Old Testament for our instruction. So the other big advantage here was that when Jesus came, there was all over the world, you know that in every city and in every major town, all through the entire Roman Empire and in a whole lot of other nations as well, places where the Roman Empire wasn't, like Arabian lands, Babylon, all kinds of places, there were synagogues, fully educated men, women, families, children, fully educated in all the word of God, all the law of God, all the promises of God, all the promises of the kingdom, knowing how to worship God, believing the promises, singing the Psalms. And when the gospel comes, guess what you've got? For those who believe, fully ready-made, mature, Bible-believing, promise-quoting, holy-living, worshipping Christians all over the world. Ready to lead the church ready to preach the gospel, heaps of Gentiles would come in, ready to teach them the scriptures, ready to teach them the ways of God and holy living. It is astounding. But he did more with that rising of empires. The, the Babylonians did a lot towards this coming with changes they made in the world. The Persians did a lot towards this. And then Greeks, Alexander the Great, the, the big thing there was Greek language, Greek culture. A lot of this was paving the way. Common language all over the world. So even hundreds of years before Jesus, guess what? All the scriptures of the Old Testament, 
all the old Hebrew scriptures that by now a lot of Jews couldn't read. Do you know why? They're now Greek speakers. All the scriptures were translated into common Greek, the lingua franca of the day, language spoken by everybody in the market, in business. Now all the Jews all over the world for a long time had this. Even Jesus and the apostles grew, grew up knowing the Old Testament in Greek, as well as whatever else they had. And how do we know? Because the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Hebrews, hosts of others, they often quote the Old Testament and they're giving us quotes from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew Old Testament. That's astounding. Common language. And then the Romans come along. Pax Romana, peace, roads, get the world under control, open up the roads, open up the sea lanes, ready for the gospel. So the early church, they can flood everywhere in no time at all and gossip the gospel because now the mystery of God can be revealed. It is astounding. But he kept it secret. The Jewish leaders didn't know what was going on. The Romans didn't know. And the, the principalities and powers didn't know. Satan didn't know that killing this man was death to them. But that's what happened. Because Satan thought the whole race was locked up under sin. You know, think about King David. God raises King David, marvelous king, because this, this kingdom of Israel was just, again, a symbol. So David's a symbol. But he gives David a promise. One of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel forever. But he's thinking of different Israel. He's thinking now spiritual Israel, not national Israel. But there's a promise. However, David falls in sin. Well, Satan's confident. There might be somebody coming, but he'd be like David. He'll fall in sin too. So you get these promises of, you know, someone will come and, you know, someone will suffer. Satan didn't have a clue. So this is the genius of it. This, this is, the reason I'm expanding this today, this one idea is so that you can so appreciate your salvation and the salvation in no one else. This is your one shot at it. You believe in the Christ or you don't believe at all. You believe in the Christ, you can be saved. You fail to walk with him, you can't be saved no matter what you do or anybody else. This is it. The one name. Now, the genius of it, of it is this. They didn't know what his suffering and death would do in the spirit realm, in eternity, what it would do in Hades, what it would do to the curse of sin and death, and they did not know what the result would be in this world. Satan had already come to Jesus in those temptations to tempt Jesus to worship him because he said to Jesus, or he showed him all the glory of the nations, all of this has been given to me. Jesus did not dispute it. It had happened because when Adam believed Satan instead of God and failed the moral test, Adam became subject to a Lord. Adam had passed the power of attorney over the planet to another person because he had obeyed him instead of obeying God. 
So Satan has this power of attorney. He governs the nations. Even this beachhead of Abraham and the 12 tribes that came and the tabernacle and the law and the priests and the sacrifices and the word of God, even though it was in the world, even though it had scattered in the world, even though it was well written, it had not changed a single nation, including Israel, which was mostly still in darkness. And when Jesus came, he said it was the worst generation of all. Didn't mean it didn't have a lot of righteous people in it, but as a whole, until Christ actually died, there was no power to change nations. But in dying, Christ takes back the power of eternity as a man. As a man. Some silly song we sing talks about the blood of God. God does not have blood. God is a spirit. It's the blood of a man. The man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. He's fully and properly God and he's fully and properly man by being born of a woman but without a human father, Adam's sin did not pass to him. The virgin birth is absolutely necessary or you can forget having a saviour. This is not, Christianity is not just a moral lesson. It is the power of God. Christ was fully and properly man in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh. He died in the flesh. And then he said, it is finished. Look, the sacrifices of Israel, the blood of bulls and goats, those animals did not sacrifice, uh, suffer. They were sacrificed, uh, that is, they were killed humanely. There was no long hours of suffering and torture and being spat on and years of being hated and despised, but they weren't betrayed. They weren't denied. But Jesus had to suffer it all. He had to suffer being lied about. He was called the devil. By scripture says he was hated without a cause. And then his own, one of his own betrayed him. Other, most of them ran away. John was still at the cross. The women were uh, you know, Peter, under the great stress, you know, tried to avoid the, avoid the truth. Don't blame Peter. That's where we would all be. Denies him. He had, he, all that. But then he's beaten up five times before he even gets to the cross. Whipped and lashed and so weak from all the lashing and bleeding and broken flesh hanging off his body everywhere. Someone's going to carry the cross. And then hours of agony on the cross until he dies. He had to suffer and die. And he did it to break the power of sin and death and get you out of it. Get you out of the curse of sin and death. The curse that says the soul that sins will surely die and that is you. You are a sinner. Don't fool yourself. Don't sit here thinking that you're okay and other people are worse. You are as foul as anyone in the human race has ever been. It's just that you were never put in the circumstances whereby that part of your nature would have surfaced. You can be thankful that your life never did put you in those circumstances. But you are a sinner. You are a sinner. And it is grace that can save you because of his sacrifice and no one else's. And if you will yield to him, if you'll receive that truth, transforming power actually changes you 
because salvation is real. It's not just a gift that you know, sits over the top of you so that the real you is no longer seen. I mean, that'd be okay if it's all it was, but it's not. It's not just you know, some clothing you put on and no one can really see what you like underneath anymore, including God. No. The moment you yield to this gospel, it begins to change you. It begins to transform you into his image, make you more like Jesus, and blessed are you if that's what you want. But the work of the gospel is, first of all, to change what you like and what you don't like. Things you used to love, you now hate, and so on and so forth. That's the gospel at work because he gives you a new heart. Praise God. Anyway, the Bible's very clear. You know, Peter stood up, Acts chapter 4, stands before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, all these rulers of Israel. You know, they're hauled in for healing a, a cripple and doing it in the name of Jesus. They're hauled in now and being grilled. And here's what Peter said to them all. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, you, the builders. What's he talking about? In the, see, everything in the, is hidden in the Old Testament. It's all there already written. And in the building of Solomon's temple, it happens to say in one of the Psalms, that a stone that had been rejected by the builders, cast aside as thinking this one's the wrong one, was discovered to be the cornerstone. It was a special stone. had to be brought back and fitted in. So the builders had rejected the stone, but it was the most important stone. So it's all symbols. Prophecy. Prophecy and symbols. And so Peter says to them, preaching now to this crowd, this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name. All of Scripture hangs together. It's a most glorious, wonderful whole. So look, Jewish feasts, the book of Hebrews says so. It says that the Jewish sacrifices, even though repeated endlessly, every day there were sacrifices, every year the Day of Atonement, it says the Jewish sacrifices repeated endlessly could never take away sins they were simply a perpetual reminder of sin and a guilty conscience because only the sacrifice of Christ takes away the sin. So all this is there and time's kind of up. Now, anyway, this, this now, this now. Now behind all of this, put this, this little bit of knowledge. This is why Jesus comes. See, Jesus is the substance. He comes. He alone takes away sins. Here's the, here are the things he says even before he gets to the cross. Listen to this. He says, I am I'm the door. He says, I'm the way. He says, I'm the truth. He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the true manna that came down from heaven. He said, I'm the water of life. And the book of Hebrews says he's the author of life. No one else can create life, but he can. And he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I'm the alpha and omega. He comes and he says, all authority, in all authority in heaven, all authority in earth given to me. And so he conquered. However, here's the promises. Here's, here's Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, now this is, this is for you right now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the one who overcomes. Now this is now Jesus speaking, by the way. It's not about Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to, let him who hears. 
to him to the one who conquers now is this going to be you or not to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life this is the tree that Adam and Eve never ate of I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God now who do you think that tree is you're going to eat all the more fully of the life of Christ to him who conquers what does this conquer mean now you'd be more familiar with the translation that says to him who overcomes but the Greek word you know obviously can have various English meanings and and conquer is you know is one of those meanings as and there's others and so even though you're used to the word overcome it will help us today to use this word conquer because I'll tell you what the the Strong's definition says of the meaning of the word used it, whatever the word was it's not going to bother you the word in Greek but whether it's translated overcome or conquer it, it means this to carry off the victory in other words get victory in your life to come off victorious of Christ if when when we say he overcame or he conquered it meant he was victorious over all his foes of Christians when we use this word conquer or overcome it means that they hold fast to their faith even unto death so this holding fast to your faith no matter what your circumstances the problem most people today is not that they're facing death and martyrdom you'd be better Christians if you were because you'd steal up your problem is you're facing a material world that's full of football and television that's your problem leisure and movies as the you give in too much to the flesh and so you're, you're, you're hardly holding on to the faith at all because you're living for your own pleasure and bodily comfort now there's nothing wrong with pleasure and bodily comfort in itself but if it just makes you weak and lazy and you never ever do fast or put time into prayer or spend some time on your knees worshiping or get to a church prayer meeting your faith hasn't done much for you at all because your faith is meant to enable you to overcome the tendency of your flesh you know, it's, it's, it's really known as the the path of least resistance oh it's so easy just to flop into an easy chair and watch the TV path of least resistance and so you become weak and him as will more be given but from him who does not have any even what he has will be taken away and he is weaker and weaker and end up no power in your prayers you, you've got to reverse that you've got to say no I'm called to conquer I'm called to eat of this tree of life so Here's a, here's a quick string of these. You, 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 it said if you conquer, he lets you uh, eat of that tree of life. But he's if you more. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one I give it to. Anyway, the one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, even as I myself have received authority, and I'll give him the morning star. Here's another, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. You know what that means? It means you'll be declared righteous, made holy, be able to stand in the presence of God. That's what they mean. And I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. The one who conquers... I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now don't think physical. 
think, think somebody strong who helps to hold the whole course of the, the, the Christian movement in place, rising up, getting built for the Lord. A pillar. It was said of James and Peter and John that they were reputed to be pillars. In other words, your life will count big time. Um, and I will write on him the name of my God. You think that's not important, but it's hugely important. It's wonderful. And, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I'll write on him my own new name. Or I tell you what, if God names you as one of his own, oh, this is special stuff. This is way up there. And the interesting thing is, it's given to all of you in Christ if you hold the faith. The one who conquers, I'll grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. And finally, he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now this is John writing about Jesus. He said to me, John says, Jesus said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So dear friends, your confession of faith, your baptism, your prayerful life, your walking with God, hugely important. It's hugely important that you be very clear in your mind who you are. You're in Christ. You're in the faith. You belong to him. These promises are yours. You're going to walk with God. And if you do, his strength comes to you so that you'll be victorious in overcoming, in conquering the world around you, your own flesh, and of course the lies of the devil. Your confession, your faith. And so dear friends, um, in, in just a moment we'll sing and the, the band can come. But in, in, this, in these closing moments of prayer, I, I want you to be honest with yourself regarding your own heart. I mean, so many of you will be, have been faithful and you know the Lord, you've walked with God, you're prayerful, and you haven't wavered in any of that. But there'll be others who, you know, like all of us at times, you've gone soft, uh, your eye, you know, your eye's off the ball. And consequence, there's been allowed too much room in your life for, you know, just, just questionable living. Lazy. Laziness when it comes to spiritual disciplines. Prayerlessness. Not, not really a charged up active faith. No one's asking you to be Superman. We're saying, don't take your eye off the ball. You know, it's Jesus from beginning to end. Walk with Jesus. Endure in the faith, no matter what the world says or does, because you belong to him and cling to him. Just remember, he will not, Scripture says he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. If you're that smoldering wick, in other words, only a spark left in you, he won't snuff it out. 
He wants to cultivate that thing so there's always a flame in you, a good flame. So anyway, search your heart. Like really what I'm saying is, have any of you become lukewarm, backslidden? That's where you bring your heart to Christ today. Because remember, there's, there's no altar here. If, but if we, if we say come to the altar, what we're doing is saying to Jesus, remember they're all symbols? Well, not only were the sacrifices symbol, symbolic of Jesus, but the old altar in the tabernacle was Jesus. So when you come to Jesus, you come to the altar. When you come to Jesus, you come to the temple of God. And when he comes to you, he's coming to his temple because the temple means a place where God lives. Have you become lukewarm? No, today. Stand firmly in the faith. I, what I want you to do as we sing is I want you just to recognize Jesus, ask him to warm your heart, say to him, Lord, would you forgive me my sin, cleanse me of my backsliding, grant me the hunger I need to every day, keep my eye on the ball, keep looking to Jesus, keep wanting more of you day by day. And then if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord at all, you've never surrendered. Maybe you've heard the gospel over and over or heard something over and over in churches, but you know Jesus is around, but you've never really yielded you must yield. There's no salvation without yielding. That's all it takes. He does the saving, but you do the, you've got to give up. You've got to give up, you know, stubbornly resisting and, you know, I'm here to please myself. A lot of this is sub subconscious, of course. You're not talking out loud and saying, no, I'm resisting God. It's your nature that's doing that. You come to this place of humility and brokenness and say, Lord, I'm yours. So some, somewhere today in this gathering, there'll be two or three people like that time to surrender and if you want the laying on of hands please feel free to come and there's any number of us here will we'll pray with you laying on of hands and believe for the Holy Spirit to come strengthen you so anybody, anybody would like to come and receive prayer feel free but while we're going to sing we're going to stand together and sing we're going to go back to what we sang before tell, tell what we're going to do we're going to the the little chorus that we sang after communion, now we were sung to by the young ladies and then they said, oh, let's sing the chorus again. We're going to go back and sing that chorus and then we're going to blend it into a second little song which we sang earlier, What He's Done. What He's Done. And, and what we've talked about today, you'll see reflected in that song. But when we're singing about, oh, what he's done, and it's a, it's a praise-giving song, this is the time to really glory in Christ, say, Lord, what you've done and I'm yours, right? This is, this is the giving of your heart fully to him, the full surrender. No, no mucking about, no double-mindedness, no on again, off again. Stop being wishy-washy about it. Only Jesus saves. And he is able to forgive all your sins, but it's on the basis of his suffering and there's no other way to do it. You want to die in your sins? You'll be in that state in eternity. Christ saves you. And the old Christians used to say, he saves to the uttermost. That's another whole subject in itself. What we, where, where this ends up is astounding. No ordinary salvation. Anyway, why don't we stand to sing? Everybody stand. As we sing, bring your heart to Jesus. Just, just look at these words as we sing about Christ. Just remember, this is your Christ. This is your Saviour. Take him to your heart all the more as we sing.